Well, good morning, everybody. A happy New Year. I think this is the first time I've seen a lot of you in the New Year, so very, very happy New Year to all of you. Um, how did it go so far? <laughs> At least one person, it went great. So good. I'll take that as a, as a launching point. So um, when I was preparing for today's sermon, it reminded me of a time uh, a few years ago. A lot of you, I think, have probably figured out that I'm a big baseball fan. Has anyone noticed that if you've been around for a little bit? Uh, particularly of a certain team from a certain town that starts with a C, ends in an O, and has a CAG in the middle and just happened to win the World Series this year. Has anyone heard of the Chicago Cubs, World Series champions? Okay, so I've been a Cubs fan my whole life. And when I was a student and first moved away from home, um, my roommate was from Cincinnati, and he was a really big Cincinnati Reds fan. And the Reds were coming to town, and so he did a really nice and really thoughtful thing. He bought us tickets to go see the Cubs uh, play the Reds, at Wrigley Field, which, looking back, was a really awesome thing for him to do. And he brought the tickets to me, and he said, Brad, um, I got these tickets. It's Cubs-Reds. It's on this date. Let's go. And you would think, if you know me at all, I would have been like, awesome, thank you, let's do this, I can't wait. But I said no. And the reason I said no was because for whatever reason, and maybe a good reason actually, at that time in my life, I decided that I was going to take a break from professional sports because I thought in, in my life sometimes I've gotten maybe just a little bit too into um, professional sports. Maybe particularly a certain team called the Chicago Cubs, so I was taking a break. I was like, I was on a baseball fast, and I was going to take the time I usually spent reading, the, back in those days, reading the newspaper about the, the, the game the day before and stuff like that. And maybe I'd spend it on spiritual practice and do things like that. So I told my roommate, Gates, I'm sorry, no, I'm not going to go. I probably didn't explain it very well. But, and at the time, I didn't think too much of it. But one day, it just hit me. Oh, man. My roommate was really going out of his way to engage with me, to get to know me, to do something nice for me. And I told him no. And I remember also, I think it actually affected our friendship a little bit. Um, looking back, I feel like our friendship was a little bit different every day after that. And the reason I mention this is because as we move into the new year, I want to talk today about focus. I think focus is really important. And many of us, uh, at this time of year, we, we make resolutions about what we want to see change in our life in the coming year, what we want to do differently. And sometimes those can be really helpful, but I think only if we keep them in the right perspective. I really think it's possible, like with my, friend, my friend's invitation, to miss a better, more important opportunity because of a good spiritual choice that we've made or even a conviction that we hold. So it's important to know what things to focus on in life. So that we can pursue spiritual things, we can pursue disciplined things, but in a way that doesn't lose track of the big things, the most important things. So we don't, to borrow an expression, lose the forest for the trees. Does that sound interesting? So as you're thinking about this new year, maybe some of you think more than others, 
But as you're just thinking about your life and the things you'd like to change, the things that would be different, today I want to focus on focus. And what we're going to do to do that is we're starting a, a four-week series today that's on the good life, on what's really important. Um, pop stars have talked a lot about the good life. Have you noticed this? In the 60s, a guy named Tony Bennett, he's still with us, famously crooned that the good life was to, quote, be free and explore the unknown. You know that one? Oh, the good life, to be free and explore the unknown. I need a tip jar up here. Uh, In the 90s, Weezer reported that the good life had something to do with shaking booty on the dance floor. Um, In the aughts, the 2000s, Kanye noted that the good life is when my grandmama ain't the only girl calling me baby. And all of these takes, you know, freedom, partying, relationships, they're actually very typical perspectives on the good life. But Jesus had a very unique take. In fact, to many observers, his ideas turned many common perceptions of the good life upside down, or some might say right side up. So, for example, Jesus famously said, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I love one translation that puts it this way, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. So in Matthew chapter 5, which is our passage for today, Jesus describes what this full life looks like. Let me read it to you. This is Matthew 5, the first 10 verses. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, at first glance, I think these can all sound like really kind of pithy sayings, you know? Um, But I think there's more to it than just like nice Benjamin Franklin had a lot of great sayings. You know, people have pithy little turns of phrases. But I think there's more here. And I think what Jesus is actually doing is giving us a picture of what the good life looks like. And here's why. You'll notice that... The, this, these 10 verses, often referred to as the Beatitudes, um, our book ended with this phrase, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is important. And it's important because we started this ministry year in the fall, in September, talking about rediscovering good news. Remember that? And we looked at Jesus and we, said, and he, we saw how he came. He said, hey, I'm bringing you good news. And the good news is all about the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven wasn't a geographical place where we could all go. The kingdom of heaven was where things happen like God intends them to happen. The kingdom of heaven is where the good life prospers, is fulfilled, where people experience it. This is where you should focus. These are the big things, the important things. And the second reason we're looking at this passage is we talk about the good life, and we talk about focus, is because the word blessed or blessed, it's this Greek word that translated into blessed, and the Greek word is makarios. 
And it's kind of a hard word to kind of put into another word because it has all these levels of meaning. R.T. Francis, someone I read on this passage, and he said that one possible way to translate this would be, happy are those. Happy are those who do this. Happy are those who do that. But he also pointed out that it doesn't quite get it all because it's more than just a feeling here, more than just a psychological state. Others have said maybe it should be translated as fortunate. Fortunate are those who do this. Fortunate are those who do that. But there's no element of luck in the ancient Greek word. Some say it should be translated as congratulations. Congratulations to you if you're this way because you'll see this. And there's something to that, but it also doesn't quite get it all. I, does anyone have any Australian friends? Any Aussies in the house, even? No? Well, if you've known Aussie, well, a phrase that I love that some of my uh, Australian friends use is, good on you. You'll do something, oh, good on you, you know? I'm not going to do my Australian accent, but they'll say, good on you. And it's sort of like, thumbs up, way to go. But there's also this element of, that's the way it should be, Right? And that's what blessed means here. There's two sort of things happening here. First, it's a description of what the good life is, but it's also a commendation if that's what you're doing. It's both a thumbs up and a look at this. This is what it should be. This is the blessed life. This is the full life. And good for you if this is what you're pursuing. Does that make sense? So if that's the case, what does the good life look like? Now, we're going to take four weeks to look at several of these phases, phrases, but today we're going to start in verse 7, which says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So a sign of the good life is mercy. Now mercy, in simple terms, is not giving someone what they deserve when they fail. That's what mercy is. Someone, you, or you not giving someone what they deserve when they fail. Mercy is all about second chances. And second chances are hard to give. You know, it's a lot easier just to judge people and write them off than it is to give them a second chance. And I think Jesus was very aware of this. And for that reason, I think we can gain real insight into how this can happen by looking at how Jesus spoke about mercy in other contexts or other parts of the Bible. So in Matthew chapter 9, this is written. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In this passage, Jesus is eating with people who were generally considered sinners, unclean, people you didn't want to hang out with, people who could contaminate you if you were a good religious person. But there's also a really big thing happening here. And we see from Jesus' words that his new friends and the people he's hanging out with, uh, they're sick in some sense. They're suffering. Um, They're spiritually, maybe uh, emotionally sick in some sense. And although many of them are probably material, materially rich, they're not experiencing the good life with all that they have. But the people who are criticizing Jesus, they have trouble seeing this. They happen to be really, really religious folks. 
folks who are very sincere about following God's way. In fact, from a distance, you'd think that they were pursuing many of the things that Jesus talks about in this list of Beatitudes, righteousness, for example. And a lot of the things that Jesus say people will be blessed if they pursue, but somehow their focus is off. Somehow they're missing something. He kind of sensed that. So to get their attention, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, which is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God said this in the Old Testament to wake up the Israelites at a time in their history when they were very religious and performing all sorts of religious activities, but ignoring the oppression that existed in their society. In a similar way, the folks that Jesus is talking to here are so concerned that they might be made unclean by associating with sinners and tax collectors that they can't see the really, really big thing that's happening. That there are people who are sick in some sense and need help. And to Jesus, that is much more important than any fear of contamination or rumors about who he hangs out with. At another point, he says to um, the really religious group of the day, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important, weightier, that's another way to say that, or meaty matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Now it seems to me that what Jesus is saying right here is, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing the good life. You're missing the experience of the kingdom of God because you're focused on the wrong things. Instead of focusing on the important or the weightier or meaty things in life, you're focusing on trivial things. And the good life belongs to those who focus on the right things, the weightier things. So let me suggest that the question to ask ourselves is, is we, are we, <laughs> is, are we focusing our lives on the weightier matters? What really matters? The areas that should call out to us for greater focus or on trivial things. And what is a trivial thing? Well, here's my definition for you to think about. I think a trivial thing can be defined as any activity, even good ones, that distracts us from the weightier things of life, the important things. Mercy is one of the weightier things. Fasting is great. Tithing and being generous is great. Religious practices are awesome. But they're meant to soften our hearts to the weightier things. Like mercy. Instead of connecting us to these greater things, sometimes they replace them. They steal our focus. Then... They become trivial activities with no benefit at all. If our spiritual practices don't connect us to the weightier things like mercy, we might as well have just stayed up and watched middle-of-the-night television infomercials as opposed to praying. 
You know, it can be tempting to focus on things that aren't the big things because they tend to be the things that are easier to control. So we feel better about ourselves if we're able to do them. And this can be a big motivator, you know. But control, actually, is never the end that we, sh- that we seek in our faith, in our pursuit of Jesus. Faith is actually about giving over control to something or someone else. And big things typically ask us to give up control, not seize it. Mercy entails giving over the right to punish or hold something over another person. And by holding things over other people, we keep them in our debt. And we may be even able to control them with our threat of retaliation, emotional or practical. And with spiritual practices, we can try to control God with our prayers, with fasting, with righteous acts even. Like if I do these things, God has to bless me. Blessed am I if I can master these practices and force God to bless my life. But God doesn't work like that because, you know, he doesn't need any of it. The spiritual practices, they're for us. They're not for God. They're to help us connect to the weightier, meatier things of life, including his presence. God doesn't get the benefit from those things. We do. And it seems the way that Jesus is talking today, he's much more interested in who we are than how disciplined we are. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. He wants us to be merciful people, for our communities to be full of mercy. That's the end game. That's the weighty thing. So how can we keep things in perspective? How can we keep our focus on the weightier things in life? And I think Jesus anticipates this isn't always easy. And so I think the next verse actually in part, is there to help us do this very thing. The next verse is, uh, the next beatitude is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Another sign of the good life is a pure heart. There's something about a pure heart that helps us see God, helps us understand who he is, what he might be doing in a situation. If the Pharisees could have seen God, in a situation where Jesus is eating with people they don't think he's supposed to be eating with, it would have changed their whole perspective on what was happening. I like the definition of a pure heart that Soren Kierkegaard put out there, for lack of a better way to say that. He said this, Purity of heart is to will one thing. I think that's a pretty good definition of a pure heart. I think when we think about a pure heart, we often think in terms of a heart that doesn't indulge in certain practices or ruminations of things that are sinful. That's what we think of with purity. Heart that doesn't sin. I don't think there's nothing to purity in that, but I I think that purity is more about willing one thing than it is about not doing certain things. You may have noticed that throughout our series, Jesus often draws on themes from the Psalms. 
So um, when Jesus makes this statement, he's most likely drawing from a psalm, Psalm 24, and the psalms were a book of worship poems, ancient Hebrew worship poems that are part of the um, Jewish and Christian scriptures today. And in Psalm 24, it says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not put their trust in an idol or swear by false gods. You know, there are quite a few parallels between this psalm and Jesus' teaching. Both passages speak of who may stand in the presence of God or who may see God. And both indicated that it's those who have a pure heart. And then the psalm continues to describe what a pure heart is. It's those who do not put their trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Swear by a false god. That's something that can also uh, be translated and carries the implication of just swearing falsely. So a pure heart, by contrast, is not false. Uh, One theologian I read put it this way. He said, falsehood is what you do when you will two things, not one thing. You will to do one thing, and you will that people think you're doing another. Or you will to feel one thing, and you will that people think you're feeling another. So purity of heart, however, is to will one thing. When those things come together, when there's alignment. You can see this theme in other places in Scripture. So James chapter 4, James writes this. He says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now notice again the imagery of washing hands, purifying hearts. And then it's described that those who are referred to as those who need this purification are the double-minded. Not of one will, double-minded. And I think Jesus is saying that we do need a focus. That we need a particular focus. A focus that will keep us majoring on the majors connected to the weighty things, a focus that will help us keep on track. And here, especially in the new year, this is where I just want to get just super, 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 super simple. I want to keep this really simple. I don't want you leaving here today trying to add things up. Let me just say this. I don't, so here's the simple bit. A focus for the new year, Jesus. Here's what I mean. The Pharisees, the really religious people, aren't all bad. (laughs) Honestly, I think I was acting like a Pharisee when I didn't go to the ballgame with my friend Gates. And I don't think I was an all-bad person. I actually wanted to honor God. I, I wanted to be closer to God, but I wasn't behaving like God would have behaved in that situation. I wasn't in the flow of what the Spirit of God was actually up to. I was double-minded, focused on the wrong things, practices instead of people, just like the Pharisees. So as we move into the new year, how can we will just one thing? How can we bring into alignment the most important things of how we actually live? And I think in the end, it all comes down simply to knowing Jesus and knowing him better. It's that simple. Connecting with him so that I'm not double-minded, but sort of naturally know what's important. 
I'm connected. Can I be in the flow with Jesus so that when the moment comes, I'm prone to respond to situations in a way that would reflect who he is? And I think this actually is another way to explain or define the good life. I think faith in Jesus always centers around this. How can I know Jesus better so that I'm changed to be more like him? So I reflect him in the decisions I make and the way I interact with people. So I can be connected to what's really important in this situation, not some rule that might be good in another context, but is not what the Spirit of God is doing right now. How can I do that? I think there are lots of answers to that question, infinite possibilities. I think spiritual practices can actually help us know him more. Fasting, praying, silence, retreats. That's what they're made for. I also think how we invest ourselves and our resources makes a big difference. Jesus famously said that if you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. So there's always this opportunity to actually meet Jesus by investing in some way in someone that might be considered the least of these, on the fringe. I think you can do just about anything in your life with the intention of trying to see God. Trying to see God. Trying to know Jesus just a little bit better through this experience, whatever it is. I think particularly if it takes a bit of a risk or if it asks of you some sort of sacrifice, then man, it, that just opens you up even more to see and to see God. And it's connecting to God that is important. I, I hope and I think that's why you're here this morning, to see God, to connect with him. And the practices that we're participating in this morning, worship, this sermon, prayer, as great as they are, they're all very trivial if that's our focus. But all of these things are meant to help us to an end, to see and connect with God, to know him better so that we can be in the flow during the week. You know, as the year starts, a good question to ask yourself is, what can you try that might help you know Jesus a little bit better, to connect to him, what's important to him? And before you go right to the idea, oh, I know what I can, I can pray more, I can do something less, just, just stop for a second before you jump to what you naturally go to. And ask yourself a different question. Ask yourself this question. Where would you like to be in the flow with Jesus? What area of your life do you sense that maybe you're not? Maybe you sense that you're not connected to the heart of God in that area. Or you're not able to line up what you value with how you're living. You feel double-minded. You don't feel of one will. What's that area in your life? Maybe it's where what you want and what you really want aren't in sync. What you say you want and what you really want aren't in sync. 
What you say you value and how you're living don't match up. How can you focus on God or focus on Jesus in that area of your life? And once you identify that, keep it really, really simple. And think of ter- in terms of what can I actually do in that area of my life? What's a practical thing that I can try for a month? Just for January, I'm going to try this small thing to kind of open you up to see God. Because that one small thing is just a step towards being of one will, of pulling what you want and what you actually do a little bit closer together. Because if those two things begin to get closer, according to Jesus, there's an opportunity to see God. And when you see God, that's when things change. And that's what is the antidote to all the things you don't want to be. Judgmental, fill in the blank. Because when we see God, we see Jesus. And when we read those Beatitudes of blessed are those who do this, this, Sometimes those things seem crazy, difficult, hard to live, but I've never met anyone who said, boy, I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want that to be true. So that desire to want those things and the ability to be in the flow with Jesus and actually live those things, that's the gap we want to close. So what small thing can you do this month? What practical little action can you take for a month that is your attempt just to Reorient, just to close that gap a little bit, to bring one will to your life, more purity in that sense. And can you identify that right now? So that if someone asked you after the service, what's your thing you're going to do? What's your little tiny thing? You can actually tell them. Because that is what's going to make the difference in your life. That little opportunity that you give the Holy Spirit to work that open space you create by making a decision. But if you don't have that, this sermon may not be worth much to you a week from now. What's that little thing you can do for a month? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to take any small action that we make towards you, to pursue you, to see you, we invite you to make the most of it. We ask you to make Jesus more clear, to connect us more to who he is, what he would do, that we could, in time, just become more and more like him. So that as life goes on, as we encounter situations and people, our natural inclination becomes one that's connected to the weightiest things. To mercy, to purity, to the other things in this list. Take take our small offering 
like the boy who offered Jesus a few loaves and fishes and multiply it in our lives. Amen. If you're on the worship team, if you go ahead and make your way forward. Also, um, 